You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. This is the Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Red lights on. Red lights on, Macaulay. Look at this. Look at us. We have to start with a, what, I don't know if it's a disclaimer, an apology, or a, simply an announcement, but clearly we did not release an episode on Friday. There was no weekend long run episode, and this is coming out a bit late as well. So just a, an announcement explaining what's going on here at the Running Public Family, and that is that Kirk had a hospitalization. He's dealing with some medical issues, and we... Our, your two hosts today, Macaulay and I, had a death in the family. And so we've had 50 to 60 um, in-laws and outlaws. What's the what's the term? What's the opposite of an in-law? I, I have no idea. Anyways, 50 to 60 family members in town, 18 or 16 staying between the two houses that we co-own side by side. So it's just, there's been a lot going on. So we were not able to get one out and Macaulay is going to take over co-hosting roles this week since Kirk is still dealing with his medical issues and Macaulay's in town, flew in from Budapest for the funeral. So we have the pleasure of having two crockers, one house. Pleasure to be here again. You may be the quickest turnaround we've ever had on a guest coming back on the show and the first to ever come back and co-host. This would be the part where you'd say something about that. You know, I... Uh, something, like, some, something nice about me, something <laughs> about the pleasure or the, the honor. I've been I've been turning down podcasts for years, Bracken, and uh, I don't know. Uh, I just feel good being here, you know? You're putting me at ease. That, that shoe board behind you is looking real good. And, As uh, is my daughter's headboard behind you. Oh, you like this? <laughs> <laughs> we decided that it would be weird to both sit in... The, the shoe studio at the same time because we only have one microphone so we'd have to turn sideways and look at each other's eyes and then lean forward and have our lips next to each other so we could talk right into the mic so we are in separate rooms on the same floor of the house right now i think there's a niche for that though yeah <laughs> what would that be uh, talk for which one for sharing a house or for sharing a microphone sharing a microphone yeah probably i think in a star is born they both sing into it really closely yeah. and stare into each other's eyes so apology slash disclaimer out of the way, we are moving into training Tuesday. And this is, this is tough for me, not tough, but like in an exciting way, I've never hosted a training Tuesday with anyone other than Kirk. And you are the opposite of Kirk. You have short hair, you have no beard, and there's no redheaded, I don't know, demonic possession at all in your demeanor. So this is throwing me off a little bit. Before, before we talk training, you have anything anything else you want to bring up? I know you've been hobbling around here uh, oh, for a couple yeah. of days. <laughs> I ran a I ran a race this weekend. I talked to Rich earlier today as we recorded an episode for his show, and he said, "Hey, so you texted me twice on Thursday saying 
I'm thinking about racing. And then you text again saying, tell me I shouldn't sign up for a race. And I wrote out a long reply and I didn't hit send on accident. And then I saw you raced. He said, so just so you know, my reply said, yeah, that doesn't sound like a good idea. So Rich was on board with what you would have told me, which was don't do it. But I did it. And it was 13 miles of humble pie and heartache and actual muscle ache. Now, this was the uh, this was the Indiana uh, beast this last week. Yeah, the Spartan Midwest beast distance. So 13 miles, 34, 35 obstacles. And I would guess at least six of the 13 miles were on sand, either hard pack sand, loose sand or sand dunes which as someone who's raced in Dubai, you can attest is a delightful surface to race on. That's brutal. But, but you made it, you made it to the start line. You know, you and I had, you and I had trouble with this one year because of the time change fiasco right down there. Yeah. Indiana is a fool in that they have some counties that are East coast time and some that are central time, which is just begging for issues to happen. And that happened to us. We woke up on time for central one town over from the race and got to the race an hour after we wanted to. And I believe we just put our race shoes on in the car and ran to get our timing chip and then ran to the start line and raced. Was that the year you got off course? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sure did. Sure did. I, I was, you know, it was, uh, that's when uh, Justin Stewart showed up and I, I really thought he was going to be like the next guy in the sport. He was just, stair racing champion, stair climbing champion. He was, uh, he was running low one fifties in the 800 at the time he was in OCR. He had done it. Yeah. And he had run a 408, 409 mile. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he took off and you and I were just content to just kind of do our thing. And, uh, we got about halfway and we realized he has a massive gap on us. We panicked. You took off after him. I did my best to chase you. And about eight minutes after that, I turned a corner and I was at the finish line and I thought to myself, did I, did I leapfrog everyone and win this thing? Nope. I cut off about two and a half miles. It was immediately disqualified. <laughs> so Robert Coble was waiting for you at the finish line, yeah. but not with a, not with a medal. No, no. Did you end up uh, catching him that day? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I, but it took miles to run him down because he's a strong runner and I finally caught up to him at the, um, Atlas ball, which at the time had burpees in the middle of it. Now mm -hmm. it doesn't anymore. Did you know that? No. You, yeah. They took out the burpee section of the Atlas carry and then he fell off the monkey bar directly after. And that was it. Mm -hmm. But that was a, that was a scary day. This was less scary. I checked into my hotel and the, the, the front desk clerk announced to me the time zone issues and told me to plan ahead. So it was, it's probably the smoothest part, smoothest part of my whole weekend. So the race rough well yeah i have no fitness to speak of when when you say when you say no fitness can you qualify that do you have any any tangible baselines that you've done i do well first of all people oftentimes get mad when when people who are faster than them or faster than people they know say they're not in shape so i would say i'm in very good life shape mm -hmm. I am in very, very poor racing shape. So I did a treadmill challenge and a max gain two weeks ago. And the treadmill challenge, I got 1.29 on a Nordic track, which by the best conversion known to man for Nordic track to regular treadmills is 1.39, maybe 1.41, 42. 
which we believe the bare minimum to have any shot at making a podium at a small race is one five one five five. So it's a full tenth of a mile shy with the most generous of conversions towards being able to make a podium at a small race. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then my my max gain I did, I got, I want to say, 3,600 feet. And three years ago, when I did Killington, when I was probably, I considered I was an 85% of my max capacity fitness coming back off my first injury. Um, I did aerobic. I stayed aerobic the entire time. I did one week out. I just did an aerobic 60 minute for feet and I got like 4,200 feet. This one was not aerobic. So uh, my all time is like 4,800 feet and my best treadmill challenge is 1.71 miles. So 15 minutes at 15% incline. I've done 1.71 and I did 1.29 two weeks before this race. So a half mile less almost in a 15 minute challenge. So my fitness is, and those were the only two times I worked hard since April, really. So I've had no no anaerobic work, very little aerobic work. So just all in all, I knew I was in for a whooping and I went out there and I caught that whooping. From, from the start? Yeah. Yeah. Because I knew I didn't have 13 miles of racing. I decided to run high end aerobic for the first four miles and let obstacles and carries tip me into anaerobic and then run myself back down to aerobic. That's the only way I thought I'd get through. So at the mile, I was in second to last because people get out hard. And then I started moving up. And by mile four, I started really working for me, working. And then I caught up and moved up into fourth at one point. Uh, could see third, got within 10 seconds of third at one point. And then uh, first and second, I never saw ever. And they were gone. And then I faded badly. By mile nine, I was totally cracked. By mile 10, I was in just pure survival, try to finish mode. And uh, I took fifth. And then I missed my spear throw for the first time in six years, right at the finish line. So I tacked down a couple more minutes of really slow, painful burpees. And I got exactly what I wanted out of the weekend. I got humble pie and I got a, a good stark reminder of what's needed to do well in this sport. And I'm a happy man. I know you were depressed for me when you heard the result and other people questioned why I would do it. And I was happy. I got, I got exactly what I needed. No, it's, it's good. I, I like to suffer in, 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 in the darkness away from people and then show up, you know, ready to go. And, and for you to do that and to put yourself out there, that that's difficult. And, uh, I think it's a really good lesson. I think those rock bottoms are really important to move forward. Maybe you're not treating it like a rock bottom because you sound I am. more positive. No, I am. And I, I finally, this year we were talking in the car because you, you flew in from Budapest on that Sunday, no, on the Saturday afternoon, as I was driving back from the race, I just went right down, right back. So I picked Macaulay up from the airport and we talked on the way back. And I feel like this year I finally figured out my process, which is I learned things the hard way. And rather than get to next February and jump into the first big race and learn the hard way, I decided to stage that intervention now, go find out the hard way now so I can make the rock bottom adjustment that I generally make pretty well, but in a controlled situation. But, but but publicly is the interesting thing. That's something you could have done on your own in a, in a Pettit Center across the street. Yeah, but I've done that and it doesn't work because there's always the what if. There's nothing to compare myself to. With people next to me, I know I'm going to give my full effort and there's no hiding anything. So my only regret is that I didn't use a fake name. This shows up on my record, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is unfortunate. Yeah, it's going to throw Jack's stats off. In the future. Yeah. yeah. 
but although it it falls in line with my trending results. Anyways, enough about me. That was my race. It was miserable, but I really enjoyed myself for about eight miles. It was a fantastic course, really challenging terrain without big climbs, just challenging terrain, a great mix of everything. I don't think it played to any one person's strengths unless the one person who's in good shape, which unfortunately I... I caught the raw end of that stick. So congratulations to the people who made the podium. And I picked uh, one of you on my fantasy draft for Tahoe. So you better you better step up. They'll know who they are as soon as it comes out. So what are we talking about today, Bracken? Well, in the past, Kirk and I did an episode where we talked about our favorite workouts. And it got a lot of traction. People really enjoyed hearing that because we talk a lot of practical knowledge that people can use, but sometimes it's fun just to play, hey, what's your top three favorite blank game? That's why BuzzFeed articles do so well. Mm -hmm. Number seven will blow your mind. Stay tuned for 13. It's crazy. Well, that's what we're going to do again today. So, But I want it from your point of view. You and I grew up doing the same thing at at different with different coaches and with different schools and universities, and we see things a little differently. So I've gone through and said some of my favorite workouts that I've ever run, and these don't even have to be useful workouts. One of them that I said is a sharpening workout for 1,500, 800-meter runners in track. Like that has almost no use for our audience, but it's fun to, it's fun to fantasize sometimes. So I want to hear your Go, you can go as far back as high school. It can be pure track. It can be cross country, road racing, marathon, OCR, trail, mountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're a big treadmill fan, a proponent of training on treadmills. So it can be that. It can be mixed modality, compromise running, whatever you want. I want to hear your favorite workouts and then I want to break them down. Okay. Okay. Uh, we can we can definitely do that. Why don't we do something like this? I'll give you... I'll give you one from each stage of, of running I've gone through. So we'll, we'll do one from college, which was like a very focused, uh, hyper tool oriented training, right? Where you're sharpening uh, that specific knife and nothing else. Then we'll do OCR, which, as you said, that was very treadmill based and, and somewhat intuitive in what we were doing because there wasn't a lot of uh, training knowledge out at the time. And then we'll do one from, from the post running career, which is very, whim and emotion driven and not very intelligent but really fun Uh, so if that sounds good (laughs) i like that not very intelligent but a lot of fun sounds like a recipe for white trash success (laughs) and i feel like we can say that because our city is considered the butt crack of wisconsin it's a white trash city we embrace it but it's a it's an endearing term for us white trash balling as they say kick us off start start actually i'm gonna already break your mold I'm going to kick, I want to kick it back to high school. I want to hear an early Macaulay workout from high school, what you loved. I don't even care if it was effective because I can think of one I loved doing in high school and I couldn't do anymore because it, it wouldn't even help me at this stage of my career. But what was your favorite high school running workout to do? My, my favorite high school running workout would probably have been the solo workout I would do. So, so I, I did basketball during the year and uh, we were, you know, we were the worst team in the, in the conference and we just got beat up on every night. And while we practice, I would watch the, my buddies all in the hallway, just hanging out with the runners who had just have a blast while, while I'm, you know, running laps and, and just hating my life on, on the basketball team. They were doing big mileage training, hanging out, enjoying themselves. And I was just stuck there. And then twice a, twice a week, we would go to a basketball game and we'd be there till 10 p.m. And we'd lose by 40. 
And I remember I would be sitting there and the fans would all be, when they announced us, Bracken, you might've gone through this. They'd be like, West Dallas Central. And they'd start announcing us. The fans would stand up with garbage bags and they'd chant, take out the trash. Speaking of white trash, right? Did you ever go through this? <laughs> yeah. Like the, yeah, we were considered the trashy yeah. school of the year. And I would sit there just furious. Like I said, absolutely blown out. I'd get benched towards the end of the game, put, you know, put the scrubs in. I'd sit on the end of the bench and just look at everyone in the, you know, the audience just having fun. And, and I was just furious. All my friends were training smart. We had a big track season coming. I wasn't running and I'd go home and I'd do a two and a half mile loop. Uh, it was around the state fair park where they have the race car track in the Olympic training center for speed skating. And I would hammer that two and a half miles like it was a race. And sometimes I'd be so frustrated. I would cry while I was running. <laughs> Really? All this frustrate all this frustration coming to the surface. I just felt life was unfair. I wasn't enjoying life. Uh you know this basketball coach was a little crazy. He's actually in uh, prison now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, hold on. I, I want to get into crying while running because I've I've cried on runs and I feel like it's a rite of passage, but your basketball coach is in prison. Yeah. Why? You know, he always he would always preach to us. He he fashioned himself like a Coach Carter type guy. He was a former Bo Ryan disciple at Wisconsin and like tough and gritty. That's what he wanted out of us. And he would constantly tell us the right way to live our lives and, and nothing good happens after midnight. And none of you should be dating a girl because girls aren't good for you at this age. They can only get you in trouble. Well, years later, we found out maybe the reason he was telling us to stay away from girls was he was getting after them he didn't want competition you were poaching his high school with his high school girls yeah so we lost three three Hmm. coaches to this had a weakness for underage Mm -hmm. extramarital relationships yeah Yeah. oh but but he did something that was quite cruel to me he went up to our to our track coach and said i feel like my guys aren't fit enough i want workouts so the track coach gave him four by 800 uh workout followed by six by 400 which is a big workout for a runner. Yeah. So we're all wearing basketball shoes, start to practice. My coach says, we're doing something different today. Get on the track. And he made us run repeats. And he knew what times I was supposed to hit because he talked to the track coach. So I had to hit those times in basketball shoes. And then after that, we would have a three and a half hour practice. And the moment I lagged or had a turnover, he'd yell at everyone, McCauley's too tired from running to to give his all today you know everyone on the line that kind of thing uh, because he knew I, I i put running first so he would kind of go after me for that you know and and i did i did put running first where were we going before we started talking about coach coaches in prison two and a half mile teary tempo so i'd be frustrated beyond belief i felt life was unfair i would just hammer those two and a half miles and think every single footstep of that how i wanted to destroy all of these schools, the moment track came in, that was it. Essentially. I want to hear your, your, uh, crying run. Uh, I'm just kidding. I don't, oh, I, you just I, wanted me to divulge. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. No, I've cried during races. I, during every ultra I've ever run, I've cried at some point you're really depleted and you're kind of just stripped bare. And apparently in that moment, I'm emotional. I've got a lot of emotions that well up inside me and I'll think of something someone and then uh uh an imagined conversation comes into my mind but it's like something out of like the the turning point of a movie where it's really emotionally charged and the next thing i know i'm crying and and talking to them out loud so i haven't i haven't done the teary tempo 
So it's not frustration from you. It's it's uh, just emotionally charged. It really good, gets your engine revving being out there. Yeah, they, my, they well up deep in the later stages of a of an ultra for me. That's really interesting. I've only run four, but I'm four for four crying. So anyway, not not a great workout. Just two and a half miles, hammered twice a week, and that was pretty much my track prep. Did it work? Was it effective? What did it do for you? I think from a from a mental reps perspective. It was absolutely uh, effective because I would picture this one kid, Andrew Amato, who I had seen uh, in the bleachers jeering and pointing at me and laughing. He was my biggest rival in track. And he, sh- and he showed up and heckled you at a basketball game. Yeah, and every night I would think that and I'd think how – because I knew how he raced. And I knew at the indoor conference meet he was going to cut me off with two laps to go and make a move and I was going to sit right on his shoulder. And then with the lap to go, I was going to – just hammer past him, give him a little elbow of my own. And, and that happened to a T, that exact thing that year. Two laps to go, he moved up. Cut me off, I stumbled and almost fell on that little track, got back on his shoulder, and then, uh, yeah, outran him, outran him to the finish. And I had gone through that in my head probably 60 times, you know, prior to that race. So mental reps. Two things, I guess. One, did you give him the elbow on the way by? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, just enough to let them know. Yeah, yeah. High school, you you're a little too emotional, and you you uh, you really get into these rivalries. You know, in college, you're all buddies at all the schools, right? Like we hung out. Well, that leads to question number two: the muscle memory, the pattern, the neurological process in your brain was to beat him and then cry. Did you cry during this race or after? I did not. Were you so linked to two and a half mile teary tempos that you teared up or cried when you passed him? No, no. That's too bad. It is. It is too bad. All right. So we got high school covered. Not a smart workout, but it was mentally gritty. And it got you locked in to run off hate. Run off hate. As Let's Run would say, running off pure hate. Yeah. No, that, that that's what that was, actually. That, that's that's interesting. You said you had a good one. What was what was your high school one? I can't say it was a great workout, but we did a, a fart lick over at La Follette Park. It was that little skiing hill that really... I mean, a uh, sledding hill that's not a much of a hill, but it's the biggest we had around. And we go hard up, casual down in a in a big like triangular oval, a triangular shaped oval. If that is if that is a thing, you go hard up, ca- ca- easy cruise down and then hard around the baseball diamond and then cruise again. So it was like a two part hard, easy, hard, easy. And one of the hards was always a hill. And we'd do 30 to 40 minutes of that. And I would just get in a rhythm and I cracked that workout. That's that broken or rhythm running that, that you call it, right? Yep. From the beginning, that was what I could Interesting. do. Yeah. Because I, I did, we had the same coach, you know, I struggled with that. That was not something I was ever able to do. The flat stuff, you can get into a mode, but already then you knew, you knew what was, what was good for you. And I didn't, but looking back, I knew. I knew that I looked forward to that workout, and I didn't know why. I knew that there were guys that were faster than me in rhythm running that I would outperform on that hill, and I thought I was just good at hills. I grew up enough <laughs> to realize I'm not very good at hills, naturally, but broken running, getting in and out of cadence was my jam. All right, so let's go to college. Kirk and I talked about all our college workouts, and I'm not going to repeat them. People can go, could and should go back and listen to that that episode if you're interested in that, but... You guys had a much, much, much different training style than we did. Yours was at lacrosse was probably closer to Oshkosh's, mm-hmm. but but much more. So I'm we had cookie cutter workouts, which is probably part of the reason why I train the way I train, where I'll do twenty by four hundred rather than a cut down workout. 
where you guys at lacrosse and Kirk at Oshkosh had more multifaceted workouts. And you've told me some fascinating ones over the years. So I'd like to hear about some of them. I want you to start me off with your mile predictor workout. I've tried to talk about this on some episodes and I butcher it because I can't. But I've had some messages from people about this mile predictor workout. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Your hard float, hard float thing that tells you what you can run a mile in. Yeah. So, so one of the staples of that, of that lacrosse program, uh, and a quick aside, I said in the podcast, the last one we did, I said the wonderful Don Fritch and someone messaged me, a guy I went to school with and he said, you didn't like Don Fritch, the head coach at lacrosse. No, but I truly meant it. I think he's one of the, the greatest coaching minds I've ever been around. It did come off sarcastic to me. No, and and that's a shame because I mean he was truly extraordinary. Uh, not just not just from a understanding guys and getting on with them and being friendly, but truly understanding what everyone needed at every point of the year and and how to you know really exploit that to move them on. And this was a wonderful confidence booster for guys who were stuck in a rut. And these multi pace workouts, they were always done at three quarter distance. Of race pace. So if it, let me clarify that. If it was a, a mile predictor, like you just asked me to, to talk about, three quarters of that was run at race pace. The old predictors used to be you run three quarters straight at race pace. Yeah. So for, for you know, prior to Bannister's sub four, his, his workout, uh, what, two and a half weeks out was 1200 meters at, you know, 255 or whatever it would have taken for him to get on there sub four but how don fritch did it is you would run the full distance but you'd have these pace changes that occurred throughout it so that that mile predictor was really interesting uh here's how it went you started with 600 meters right off the start line you know fully spiked up at your goal mile race pace that was immediately followed by a 200 meter float now floating everyone has their own definition of what a float is we traditionally called that five 40 pace but when you're running mile race pace what feels like 540 is actually closer to five flat maybe it's 455 you know what i mean so you back off to what you felt was like slower than marathon pace for you guys yeah where your energy is moving you forward your momentum but you're not actively pushing the pace i like that i like that 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 description right there is what i consider a float where you take your foot off the gas like you're in a car going downhill and your momentum carries you forward without you having to apply energy to the equation. But the trick, tricky thing with that is it's it's entirely uh, pace dependent on what you were doing the moment before that. If you're tempoing at 520 pace, six flat might feel like a, like a float. If you're running 405 pace or 410 pace, 540 feels like a rest. Mm-hmm. Okay. So 600 at mile, goal mile pace, and then you float for 200 meters, which gets you to 800 meters. Yeah, and we and we traded we treated this like a race. So it was the full pre race warm up. You spiked up. You were serious. They'd have music on the speakers. You know, getting the guys ready. So you're in race mode for this, and you're hyped. Uh, so 600 meters at mile race pace, you continue running, and you come through the next 200 meters of float, and that takes you through a half mile. The moment you pass through the half mile, it's 400 meters at that mile race pace. So basically, your third lap is right back to hard racing effort. As soon as you go through 1,200 meters, your next 200 meters is a float once again, and then it's 200 meters to the finish. And that final 200 meters is 
at either mile goal pace or at 800 race pace, depending on, you know, uh, what he had prescribed for that day. So I hope my math is right on that. That should come out to, to a mile. 600, 200 gets you through the mm-hmm. eight, 400 more at race pace gets you through 12, 200 float, 200 close. Yeah. Yeah. So my, my freshman year, I watched two guys on our team, uh, who both ran, I think one ran 411 and one ran 414 that year. And they did this workout in two by 427. So they did the workout, eight minute jog recovery, did the workout again, another 427 mile. And that day I ran 444 and 448. The next year I ran 427, 427, I believe. The interesting thing about, about that, that workout is, you know, it is a confidence booster because you're switching paces so frequently that you're not believing you're running as quickly as you are. So you finish not hurting like you just finished a race. You might think to yourself, maybe that was only 80%, 85%. And you see a really quick time that's only, you know, 10 to 15 seconds off your PR. And you start thinking to yourself, I think I can run quicker than that. So it wasn't a predictor as much as a race prep. But we knew, we knew the guys who had, you know, we had 10 years of data on this. The guys who ran 408 had run 424 in this workout. The guys who ran 411 ran 427. Mm, okay. So in a sense, it was a predictor, but just the opposite way around. We also did this predictor for the 800. And I remember that one. That one was once again, spiked up really into it. 300 meters at 800 race pace, 100 float, 200 meters at 800 race pace, 100 float, and then a hundred hard finish in. Never kicking never turning over that final gear where your your turnover changed, your foot strike changed, you got on your toes, none of that. And that was once again, two by two by 800 of that. Those were right around two flat, I think. I really like these kind of things because it speaks to the, the head game coaching that is missing from most coaches repertoire. I think it's a place where that I have a lot of growth to do in the coming up with workouts that not only incite physical change, like physiological change, but mental preparedness for workouts. I really like that. And it prepares people for gear changes mm-hmm. during a race, which is mandatory when you're talking about the events that you're talking about on the track. Yeah. Yeah. Th- I like that. That that was a, still probably my favorite workout I've ever done to, to, to this day. And, and speaking of, you know, those mental games, it does take a cerebral coach to understand that it's, it's more than just running certain times. It's having a mental state while you're running those times. These allowed you to break mental barriers that allowed you to improve your PRs without getting faster. Mm. And, you know, I later used some of these with my, with my high school runners who were stuck at a time. This happens to high schoolers a lot. You know, you have that kid who just runs 1730 every week or in track, he's always 440, 442. He's in that chase group or he's winning the JV races, but he can't really get over that, that barrier. And, Lots of times from this, from a, from a dumbed-down version of it, I saw PRs in practice. Now, I did a, a second workout with some of my athletes. And this one, I'll admit, was slightly disingenuous. Uh, but it's something that I saw huge results from. And it's something I use on myself to this day. And that was doing a time trial. So for my, for my milers, I'd have them doing a 1,200-meter time trial. And for my 800 guys, I'd have them doing a 600-meter time trial. And I would talk to them ahead of time. Listen, we're not turning over that final gear. You're staying within yourself the whole time. You're not going over 95%. And then when they came through, let's say to the 600, and they're about to finish, 
I would start yelling at him, you're finishing this. And I'd make him run that 200 meters into the finish line to run an 800. And I, I saw more PRs with that. You would trick them. Yeah. Yeah, I did. So it was only if they were looking good. If we were doing a mile time trial and they were coming through the 1200 smiling or looking strong, listen, you only get so many opportunities in life where everything comes together. You don't squander that. And so unfortunately, you have to be that guy who goes, you know, nope, you got another 400 to go. Okay. So first of all, I was going to say something else based off this, but that last piece triggered a memory for me. I, I wasted one of those moments. I almost never left a race in, in practice because I was a, a racer. I always underperformed in training because I was always a little out of shape and then I'd race my way into shape. But in college one year, I ran cross country for the my senior year, which I hadn't done in the previous years. And then to start track season, I had done base like volume interval workouts all winter. So a lot of eights, twelves, miles, two mile repeats, four mile cutdowns, which for an 800 meter runner is a lot. And we came in and we did a tryout um, time trial. And I, I ran a 1200 on the indoor track and everyone else was not in shape. And I was finally in shape coming into a season and I ran 309 so comfortably that day because I, I was running with a bunch of, in my mind, out of shape scrubs behind me. And so I was just doing that like leading form, which I don't know if anyone can picture this. I always think of leading form as a different running stride than you normally have. And it's when you're in a group of people who are not as fast as you generally, or maybe they can be, but you need to take the lead for a little bit. As soon as you take the lead, your form changes a little bit. Mm -hmm. You run a little bit more up and down rather than like loping. And you start turning over well, but your arms are just like robotic and everything just clicks a little bit. That's the form I kept the entire time for 1200 meters, which 309 is, is relatively quick for, for that kind of running form. So I never kicked, but had, I looked back later and said, I should have finished one more quarter mile because I would have probably run like a four, I don't know. 413, 414, like maybe faded to 415 in tra- in practice by myself. And it would have totally changed my, my mental trajectory of where I was going. Because you're right. Some days you surprise yourself by not preparing for a race and your body just clicks. And I didn't do it that day. And I really should have. That's exactly it. When I was when I was in college, I had a lot of workouts just like that. And, and coaches were very, very adamant on always stopping early, always believing you had a little more uh, to go, it's like a 100 meter guy who always eases up two meters before the finish. I always wonder, like, why do they do that? But but the truth is, mentally, they'll always know they had more to give. But with distance running, you might not get a chance to do it. And I, I was injured, as we covered. I never ran fast. So when I moved on and started coaching, I realized, like, with my guys, I'm not doing that. If you have it one day, we're going to let you rip it. And once and once you run that, you've run it. It's not a fluke. There's no such thing as a fluke in in running. So once you've done it, you've, you've gotten through that barrier. Okay. So we've talked about the story of my running where my high school coach, coach Lindenberg, who you had as well, we called him Lindy, one of the greatest humans I've ever known in terms of just having a heart for people and wanting to do right by them. But he was not a good coach in terms of X's and O's. He didn't know the sport. He just knew kids, but he lied to me one day right before a mile saying that the other team stud was no longer racing. 
And so I lined up, this was pre-internet really, like in terms of social media, that type of pre-internet. And so I didn't know what the kid looked like. And so I lined up, sat on his shoulder and kept getting annoyed by how much the race hurt. And then I'll kick him the last hundred meter day, the last hundred meters of the race. And I cut like 14 seconds off my mile PR and ran 428 outdoors in like 34 degree weather and wind because it was the team stud. But because I wasn't expecting it to be bad, I just knew I could do it. And so he did that trick. He tricked me into that. But then I never, I ran 426 the last meet of the year. I went like 28, 29, 30, 29, 28, 30, 29, 26. That was the rest of my season. I ran the same time every single race because I'd be sitting there in school writing down the different splits on my notepad. Like, all right, I got out in 67 last time and I could try getting out in 65 this time, but then I'm going to have to slow my third lap a little bit. And I got so caught up in the numbers I'd have to run that bigger numbers or faster numbers seemed seemed daunting. And I, I realized, yeah, I just can't run much faster than this. But a workout like you're describing, especially to a a mind that is not fully developed in terms of their running potential, would have been a really powerful tool with potentially breaking through that mental barrier. Yeah. And the the unfortunate thing about that 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 breakthrough, whether it's it's breaking twenty for the first time or you know, breaking as you did 430. Traditionally, that first breakthrough is effortless. If you think of your greatest race you've ever run, there's probably no pain associated with it. And we we make the false assumption that we have a lot more to drop after that. And we don't understand, no, you get one gimme. You always do. Your next race at that same pace is going to be the most difficult thing you've ever done. Yeah. And training needs to change at that point, but we seldom do. I want to belabor that point a little bit. I, I want to elaborate on that. That's important to talk about. That the first time you do something and do it well, it's exciting. And the excitement of the newness means you're not overthinking it every step of the way. And it's an exciting, invigorating process. But then it starts to feel just as hard as everything else used to. And so the training and mindset need to change. I think that might be the big takeaway from this episode is that once you break through your training and your mindset have to graduate up as well and expect that you're going to go through all the same hurdles and pain and difficulty again, but knowing that you're capable of doing it faster than you used to. Very few coaches are capable of, of doing that. I would agree. And it takes intuition and, and really knowing your, your athletes and yeah, it, it's it's really difficult. The other thing I'll say is it, it's also why runners hang on too long because that breakthrough, they don't understand that sometimes that was it. There's nothing more. Mm. Pain pain and performance don't always line up. That's, that's really true. If you think about your best performances ever, they're generally coming at a time where you're making a move late in the race and you are accelerating all the way through the finish line, which is almost impossible to do unless you're chasing someone down or running away from someone. It's very, very difficult to do while getting run away from. And so you have the extra chemical releases that happen when you're being more and more successful with each step. Every time you gain ground, you get that little release in your brain that dulls the pain and excites you. And you don't get those releases when you're just running a non-sensational race. Even if it's at a faster pace, you're just against faster people. You don't get the release, even though you're running faster because now you're getting beat. And that's, you can't recreate that first time feeling. You can only find ways to break through in other departments. And and there are mental games you can play uh, to, to potentially change your, your state going into that 
going into that race, a lot of guys do uh, caffeine because it does give you that slight head rush that you were just talking about, this wonderful sense of elation. If you've, if you've withstained from, from caffeine for long enough, it's, it's a nice little uh, performance benefit. Withstained, huh? Is that a, is that a word? Uh, it's, a, it's a mashup of abstained and withdrawn. I like it, withstained. That's trademark it. That's got some imagery to it. I'm going to roll with it. It's not as good as growing. <laughs> Pulled my growing, but it's close. <laughs> so here's another thing that I have done, and I occasionally do it to myself. Mess up someone's, intentionally mess up their warm-up window. When I look back on college, both of my PRs came from races where the bus showed up late or we misread the schedule. So I thought uh, one of those times when you and I qualified for nationals in the the distance medley, I was sitting there. I thought I had an hour and a half to go. I'd just eaten some food. And all of a sudden, Don Fritch came sprinting over. He said, listen, we have 25 minutes to the race. I messed up. I didn't see it. I got a five-minute warm-up, got my spikes on, panicking, adrenaline-filled, sprinted to the start line, and ran far quicker than I ever had in my life. That was one of two two college experiences. And then you and I ran this race a few years later when I was doing some some heavy distance running at the time and had a big base. We did the full moon four-miler. Oh, yeah. No, no, not full moon. Sorry. We, uh, it was a race in downtown Milwaukee. What was that? It was the Bastille days. Bastille Rush days. on Bastille. Storm the Bastille. And it was you and all your Whitewater teammates, and we went and ate a ton of uh, Chinese fast food, right? Oh, I forgot about this, Macaulay. You casually mentioned, hey, there's a race downtown tonight, it's, but it's in like an hour and 20 minutes, but we could go. Had we gone to New China Buffet? Something like that. Oh, my goodness. We ate so much Chinese food. And in the back of my head, there was a race I kind of wanted to do. That's a terrible setup for a race. But but then we kind of panicked and, and we had this built-in excuse. We were full of Chinese food. We were running late. We were going to miss the race. Hopefully we could get to the start line. So you just parked. We all sprinted over. I remember I was wearing your uh, orange and Nike Mayflies and I broke 16 for the first time. And I just felt great the whole time because there had been no time to panic, no time to overthink things. You just got thrown into it. So... I have, I'll admit, I have told uh, an athlete before who was a bit of a head case that he had all day and then tried this, came up to him and said, hey, listen, you have 30 minutes to your race. You get you just short warm up, get over to the line. I don't remember if it was successful or not. Oh, you got to have the payoff. <laughs> no, no, cannot remember, but, but I have messed around with that before. Well, again, that race where, where Lindy told me that that stud from, from Catholic Memorial isn't going to be here was uh no mcguanago stud from mcguanago is not going to be there that was also we got there late compressed time cold didn't get a full warm-up there's something to that there it you're right it it's one of the ways to release the needed chemicals without experiencing something new is to fabricate something else new or different fight or flight is a legitimate thing in our body and excitement and looking forward to something gives us a bit of those same releases. But getting some fright in there, getting some panic, as long as it's it's dosed at the appropriate time is a fantastic way to do it. There was another time, though, when that didn't work out for you. The last uh, college conference championship I ever ran, it was like 40 degrees and sleeting. And we were both scheduled to run the 1500 meters, the metric mile. And 
we're lining up and I notice you're not at the start line and we look across and you're sitting down on the other side of the track putting your spikes on. I have no idea how you missed this because they make announcements and all of us were over there. And I ran halfway across the field and yelled to you and you stood up and sprinted over to the line and we ran the mile and you took, what'd you take? I, I took last. Last place. Yeah. <laughs> so that that one didn't pan out, but that's a little bit different. That was that was too late. And we were we were tripling that weekend, and just that was brutal. That's true. Yeah, that was brutal. Your legs were trashed. You had a you had a good one. I actually kept you from winning a conference championship that day. Uh, I don't know. I was always a front runner, and that day I just said, you know what? I I wasn't able to warm up. Uh, I'm tired from running the 800 a couple times. I'm just going to sit in back with Bracken. You and I sat in seventh and eighth place for three and a half laps. And everyone just uh, just kind of was – you know, we weren't running too quick, I don't think. And then you tried moving, but I was in your way. Is that what it was? And when I, and when I finally moved, you jumped wide and had this massive kick, the final 250 meters, and you just missed – you took second or third, I remember. But I remember thinking after, yeah, I lulled him into a sense of complacency. I just trapped him on the rail and jogged next to him until he had to. It's a shame. <sighs> anyway. My, my college career is filled with what ifs, Macaulay. And it's the only thing that sustained me to keep trying to compete post-collegiately. So maybe deep down that day, you saved me from peaking too early. Because if I win a conference title... That's about as good as my running career is going to get. I'm never going to win a national title, but a conference college title, that's something to hang my head on. And instead I was runner up and I had some fire in the belly. You were this close though. That was probably the fastest last 200 meters I've ever run in my life. I felt guilty doing it. You ever have that when you close a race really hard and you realize I was sandbagging and I'm running way too fast right now. That's how I felt that day, except that I was also 50% panicked that I was never going to catch back up to the podium. There's got to be a video. Maybe it wasn't as fast as I thought. got to be a video somewhere. Okay, so you've talked about track workouts. I want to hear, because one of the things I think are uh, a strength of UW lacrosse is strength workouts. Not weight room strength, but running strength. Things that are designed to get you to work at a semi-high end for a long time, for many, just to accrue a lot of volume in one workout. So what off the top of your head, I didn't, I didn't prep him for this, but what off the top of your head can you come up with for some of those long workouts that you guys did that would be more applicable to the, the post-collegiate runner who's listening to this, who's not trying to run on the track? When I watch, when I watch uh, Kip Chogi with his, with his mm-hmm. staple workouts, you know, his, his thousands uh, that he does on the track and then his long tempo, that's, that's the lacrosse distance team do a T. I don't think there's any any secret recipe you need uh, to be a good marathoner or or uh, endurance runner, and I think you need those those thousands uh, every Tuesday. And describe that to me. What do thousands mean? What people traditionally do is x amount of repeats, and these are thousands at uh, x pace. And of course, this changes per person. Uh, the most traditional is three minute recovery, uh, six to eight by thousand, depending on your your uh, your fit thousand meter run three minute rest, yeah, and then a there's always a part two to that workout, so that's usually run at five or ten k pace, and then you're usually finishing up with something a little quicker. That's usually six or ten by four hundred meters, and that's either at mile or three k pace with uh, some more significant uh, recovery on that. 
or less, uh, depending on the day. And really, if you look at any training program on the planet from the Rift Valley to, you know, the Boise guys, everyone's doing this. That's one of their two workouts. So, so that's essentially it. Now, what lacrosse did is they never did thousands, at least when I was there, on flat ground. We had Hickson Forest in our backyard. That was a bluff with some significant elevation gain. I think you could get, or vert, I should say, I think you could get 700 feet back there. And the thousand we ran was probably a three percent incline for the first for the first three hundred meters, and then there were a couple sharp turns as it wound through trees, another slight uh, decline and in incline, and then a decline to the finish. So those thousands were actually ran at three different paces, and I think that that really worked well for those guys when it came time to run hilly courses, whether it was cross country. Or, or marathoners too, because they've had some good marathoners after, after the fact. We've seen in the marathon trials the last couple of years that lots of people uh, cannot run even a tiny hill. And I think just by throwing a, the smallest bit of incline work into your thousands, you'll be prepared for those, for those uh, courses. Yeah, I think that, and we've talked about it before, but there's this misconception that speed work must be done on a track. Mm-hmm. And running it with a bit of vert is just power like in a bottle you should you bottle that right up and you just drink it the whole workout it is stain power through and through all right so let, let's jump to post collegiately unless you have anything else in college you want to talk oh about. no just uh the second workout of the week which is up to, up to a four oh yeah, yeah I, I shortcut you <laughs> you guys have done enough talk on these so i mean i'll be extremely brief but i mean basically uh up to a 40 minute tempo and some of those are approaching race effort and you you get two days like that, and you have a long run with some uh, with some marathon pace in it, and you've got yourself a stew. Like there's not much more needed for a marathoner, uh, in my in my opinion. I think it's really easy to coach and train for those long distances. I just hate it, and I'll never do it. So long intervals and and long threshold runs mm-hmm. on on some terrain. That's it. All right. So we've talked your track. We've talked your staying power workouts. How did you translate that off-road then? So let's switch over to your favorite OCR workouts. When I came to OCR, I, once again, there's not a lot of uh, information out there in, in 2011 and 2012 when, when I started training. So we wanted a way to control terrain, pace, and conditions. And that's where the, the treadmill came into play. There was, a, there was a second motive for me in moving to entirely treadmill-based workouts for OCR, which is what I, essentially I did outside of stepping foot on a track every once in a while. And that was these severe hamstring and hip issues I'd been having for years. And I looked into it because at, at some point you realize like after X amount of years, this might not go away. So rather than changing myself, why don't I change the conditions that I'm, that I'm existing in, right? So what I did is I looked into it and I realized that incline running uh, had a far less significant load on the hamstrings uh, in the hips compared to flat running. Why not stay away from engaging my hamstrings? I was also sitting a lot at the time. And the more you sit, the tighter your chain becomes, the tighter your hamstrings are, the more they shorten. And then you go run. And this is entirely counterintuitive, right? Uh, and it, I think it's a reason why people get hurt more and more these days, because that's that's the route we're going, you know, society wise. We sit and these are almost uh, macro evolutionary changes, you could say, micro, I guess. I hopped on a treadmill. I started putting the incline 
at a minimum three to five percent of any workout I did. And I stopped having some of those hamstring problems. So that was a really nice, I guess you could call it a band-aid for, for that. And it allowed me to train hard. So what we had was uh, a workout called the FB Run. And uh, we created this and it was named uh, in honor of the oft-elicited response from people upon doing it, which was F burpees, essentially. So it was the FB Run. This was my closest thing to a race simulator for stadium sprints that I was able to find. And just doing some version of this along with an incline challenge once a week was enough to get me uh, in race shape. For, for stadium sprints. So how this workout worked was it was an all-out, basically, effort, maybe maybe 95% on a treadmill. You started with either 25 or 50 squat jumps and 10 burpees. And then you did half a mile, run at a hard pace at 7% incline. This is all continuous. And then either 25 or 50 split squat jumps, 10 burpees. That was followed by another half mile run at a hard pace. Now the incline is going up. This half mile, it was at a 10% incline. Hopped off. It was five burpees, 10 jump squats, 10 split squats, and then a five minute max effort at 15% incline. Moment you hopped off, you had either 15 or 30 burpee finisher. And that was the workout. It was short, it was sweet, and it's the closest I've ever felt uh, to how I felt in a, in a stadium sprint. Mm. Yeah, that's that sounds miserable. Yeah. So basically just just half mile efforts with hard calisthenics in between and those half mile efforts keep going up incline wise, which is just, you know, wrenching that that heart rate up. How long do that would a workout like that take you? Roughly. The goal of that was to have it be right around 25 minutes. And I'd have to go back and look and see if it really was because we knew these stadiums the sweet spot was anywhere between 19 to to 30 depending on the day. So if you could work hard for 25 minutes, you were probably going to be fine either way. Half mile, half mile, five minute finisher mm-hmm. with tw- with 30 to 50 squat jumps or split, uh, or split squat jumps paired with 10 burpees each time. Mm-hmm. And then 30 finisher. Yeah, that's nasty. Yeah. Well, you know, stadium sprints at the time, uh, the guys coming into it didn't they were, they were more CrossFit types, and I don't think they had the knowledge. So marginal gains were easy to come by, and this was one of those workouts where if you were good at, at uh, getting right in and out of something and, and hopping right onto the treadmill, recovering while you're, while you're running, no recovery between exercises, that wasn't something people were doing back then. So those little simple things where mm. you, know, you could gain seconds and seconds on people uh, throughout a race just by transitioning quickly and, and, and things like that. That makes sense. Do you have any other favorite treadmill workouts from this time? Anything unique to you? My my go-to at altitude was always a two-mile uh, tempo on the treadmill, followed by a track session outside. That was something I did for, for a couple years. And I know that two-mile tempo isn't technically accomplishing a lot from a, uh, from a psychological or physiological uh, viewpoint. But for me, it was necessary because I always struggled at altitude and I just wasn't able to run hard for much longer than that. Well, and it's also, that's something you see. That's something you see more and more in in training groups now. I know that uh, Tom Schwartz, the Tin Man Elite training group, loves starting with cruise intervals or short tempos to start off their interval sessions. And and there's some some insightful knowledge behind that. And he, I think he's someone worth looking up if you want to look at sustainable training for your 
for yourself or for others where he put, does a lot of some maximal efforts, but he likes to start interval sessions with some, some threshold work. Mm-hmm. I think the two most painful and effective treadmill workouts I did one was just, uh, we would do 90 seconds at right around three K pace, which is in between mile and five K. And then we'd hop off and then we do 30 to 45 second bouts of running at mile effort with 10 to 15 rep high intensity exercises. So we'd run 30 seconds hard, 10 burpees, 30 seconds hard, 10 jump squats, 30 seconds hard, 10 med ball slams, and then hop back on and have to try to hold that for another 75 to 90 seconds at the end. And then you get equal recovery. That was a four or five minute round. You get four to five minute rest. We took big rest on that so that we could crack the whip hard on those. But those always felt like your whole body was drowning in an acid sauce by the end. You know what? That was, that was actually a far better stadium workout. And I had completely forgotten about that. It's just been so long. No, those are, those were fantastic. And I, I think great, great, uh, stadium simulation. So you're right. Yeah. And we were always doing that one at altitude out at that Cheyenne, uh, Canyon location. Yeah. That was like 6,800 feet to do a mile and three K treadmill work with intense exercises was just brutal at that elevation. Mm-hmm. And then the other one was, uh, I, I call it the, the treadmill challenge simulator, where you choose your goal treadmill challenge pace. So again, that's 15 minutes at 15% inclined to see you how much distance you can cover. So let's say a good score, let's say you wanted to hit one mile throughout that. Well, that's four miles per hour pace you have to go at to make a mile in 15 minutes. So you set the treadmill at 15% incline and four miles per hour, and you run for a minute, hop off and do 10 burpees and get back on as quickly as you can. And you hold that and you try to hit 10 rounds of that, rest and do that again. And it's a very, very difficult workout. When I'm in decent shape, I'm dizzy completing it. And when I'm not in decent shape, I don't complete the workout. But it's simple, 60 seconds on, 10 burpees, 60 seconds on, 10 burpees. And it's the kind of workout that's over so quickly and it's so miserable, but it teaches you to really work your arms and pull your heels through when you're tired that I would still give a workout like this to a rhythm runner who's not preparing for off-road racing to get ready for broken rhythm racing on the roads. Because it's so effective at getting you to recruit more muscle fibers during your run stride than just a standard run workout. But it's over so quickly that you can fit it into a week without really even having to adjust your overall volume. So I think even the standard runner could benefit from a, almost look at it like a Metcon strength workout rather than a run workout. Yeah. So that workout was one I remember, I think uh, maybe you were doing it back in the day, but what really caused that to gain popularity in the OCR industry was uh, Matt Novakovich versus Robert Killian. Am I remembering this correctly? Oh, that was a different version of the same workout. Yeah. When you flew up to Anchorage. Yeah. And they, they did a workout against each other. Now that was the endurance version of this workout. That was, that was what 90 seconds at 15% incline and then hop off and do seven burpees and you had to be back on in 30 seconds. And you basically go until someone cracked, mm-hmm. but this was the dead opposite. This was 10 rounds rest, 10 rounds done. And the rounds were only 60 seconds long. You know, it's a, it's a 20 to 25 minute workout and you can get by with just one round of it. If you don't really need to prepare much for OCR. So it's a, it can be a 12 minute workout. 
Okay. So to redeem myself, because I don't think the first workout I gave you uh, was was anything special, I want to talk about something I've been doing in, in treadmill running in recent years. Because as I've gotten older, I've just done more and more of it. Like I have a broken foot that just doesn't heal and it seems to feel good on a treadmill. So I do a lot of that. This is something I've stumbled upon uh, later on in life. And I, I wish I knew it at the time I was in OCR because I think it really would have helped my performance. And it's something called speed versus swing uh, running. Speed versus swing? Yeah. I don't know if you've, if you've ever heard anything about this. No. But, you know, before, before it was the East Africans and the, the uh, Rift Valley athletes who were dominating the running scene. Just briefly, there was a small country dominated the running scene, and it was actually Hungary. From 52 to 56, Hungarian athletes held every world record from 1,500 to 10,000 meters. And not many people know about this because those athletes kind of faded uh, rather quickly. What happened was in 1956, the Russians put down the Hungarian Revolution, where the students took up arms against them. And following that, that failed revolution... I believe almost a million Hungarians fled the country. All the Hungarian athletes who had won all these gold medals fled. All the coaches fled. They ended up all around the world. And their training was kind of lost. Some of those guys... Are we about to discover the Atlantis of workouts, of training philosophy? This sounds like a made-up story. This sounds like a a, a narration to a, a movie about like some sort of ancient civilization that... Indiana Jones is going to go uncover. Is this real? This is real. Mihai Iglui, and I'm probably butchering uh, his last name. He was the coach of these guys. And like I said, his his students, they had every world record. He ended up passing away, I think, but but his 1,500-meter gold medalist ended up escaping, getting out of Hungary, getting out of Europe, and ending up in the U.S. where he made his way to California in the late 50s. So what he did is he took a job at a local university. He was a nighttime janitor, and he taught himself English during the day. You know, he had to re- reinvent himself, as so many people did. This was a 1,500-meter world record holder who is now a janitor in California? Gold medalist, I believe, yeah. Gold medalist, okay. Yeah. And it's been, it's been a long time since I've read this, so someone could probably fact-check me pretty easily. And maybe I'm off on, on 1,500 or 5K, but regardless, he was, he was a good runner. And eventually... He was hired on as an assistant at USC. Later on, he went on to coach Dwayne Solomon in the 800 meters. And because of that, we now know some of uh, the Hungarians' training tactics. Uh, Dwayne Solomon, for anyone who doesn't know, I believe he took fourth uh, in the 800 meters in 2008 Olympics or 2012 bracket, the greatest ever run when Rodisha broke the world record. Yeah, where... What, the top six people or eight people ran the fastest time ever for that position finish at an Olympics? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Mihai had also coached a few other guys like Bob Shul, uh, who in Tokyo, he won, I believe, the 10,000. He closed in 54, which is, you know, just ridiculous speed these guys uh, had back then. No one was closing that quick. Uh, but anyway, what they did is they had two different forms that they ran with. They had speed running and they had swing running. Speed was traditional track style repeats. Anything they ran with this form, it was traditional form, you know, looking powerful, good turnover, heels up to butts. Then they developed uh, the second uh, type of form, which they also ran these same workouts at, alternating between the two. Uh, That was a swing running, and this was more of like a dainty 
tiptoe type running. And it worked entirely different tendons and ligaments and quad versus hamstring. Uh, what they were doing is making sure that when guys got fatigued, they could still run fast. Even if they were running cross country in poor conditions, even if you know they were doing hills, it didn't matter because they were capable of running sub four with with a really nice form. They were capable of running sub four with this compact other form. So they were really doing some sort of compromise running before anyone else. So uh, when I came out to Hungary, I was I was messing around with that a little bit, and then I realized the same thing exists on the treadmill or should exist on the treadmill because when guys run OCR, they have two different styles of running up hills, right? You have your traditional heel striking. And then with severe inclines, you have totally tiptoe driven. So there's traditional running and there's like step running is what I call it. So these days when I run on a treadmill, I'd say 80% of the running I do is step running where I land only on my tiptoes, fully loaded hamstrings, And what I've realized from this is not only do I feel better when I get outside and I run up hills, but my explosion, my vertical, and even things like my deadlift seem seem to have improved through this. Have you ever messed around with your your foot stride before on a on a treadmill? Yeah. In fact, it's something that I keep trying to fix, and maybe I need to lean into it a little bit more. So you're saying that essentially they identified Maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm hearing this incorrectly, but they identified the fact that some runners' form breaks down when they fatigue or hit bad terrain, and they said instead of saying that we're going to bulletproof the form so it never breaks down, they said we're going to practice both forms and be good at both so that you don't have to rely on your prancy form in in fatigued situations. That's that's essentially it, and and I guess a uh, purist might say uh, this this runs counter to everything that running stands for, which is pure efficiency over a, a single linear movement. I'm not sure how I feel about it. I think for OCR guys, they need to be able to run uh, in different ways. I think they need to be able to run up a mountain in different ways. They need to be able to power hike and do all these things, and they should they should mess around with these different flexion angles and toe strike versus heel strike and find out what's most efficient for them. I really am intrigued by this. So... So speed versus swing running. This is what I need to research now? Yeah, two, two uh, forms that are entirely on different sides of the spectrum. Same workouts for each. And sharpening uh, two tools, I guess, versus, versus one. And you see this play out when you watch some people run intervals and they're just peppy and bouncy and peppy and bouncy. And then as soon as they fatigue in a race, they're just sloppy and slow. And they have no ability to sustain their stride. Hmm. Macaulay Crocker, we made it an hour and seven minutes before you drop this bomb in the middle of the running community. And now you're getting a taste for why these episodes go so long. What did we, what were your words to me before we got started? 25 minutes. Just get to 25 to 30 minute episode, get it done. And then you can get back to Kirk. Here we are an hour and 10 minutes later, and we're talking about poignant topics in running. Unbelievable. You're a bad influence on me. I'm trying to cut down the time, and this is going to be our longest training Tuesday we've ever released. This might even just turn into a standalone episode. I don't know if you're if you get a raise or if you're fired. Well, let's call it a day, but let's call it with a call to arms for people on their next uh, treadmill workout or uh, interval session. Mess around with with different forms and try and try and hold it for a full repeat. And on the treadmill, if you're running with a heart rate sensor and you're doing any any work at ten to fifteen percent. 
uh, switch from landing traditionally on your heels all the way onto your tiptoes and, and track your changes and see what, what feels better to you. Obviously, you'll, you'll have some muscular fatigue in different places, but maybe it's a good thing. Oh, this begs many questions, Macaulay. It invites many questions. So why don't we just then switch to becoming the most efficient as possible at our pre-sagged stride so that we never sag and then we just become highly economical at the second stride so we can start in that stride. And then the only a bit of supplementary speed work at the perfect stride or none at all? Maybe you don't need a perfect stride ever because 90% of the races out there are happening at... 90% or less of max heart rate. So maybe you don't even have to run a stride that's ever that fast. Maybe you have to have sitting in a chair stride and just turn over all day long. The golden rule of running is look good to, to run good. So this is, uh, I don't know how it fits into that. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I think that I'm going to have to research this. I'm going to have to read some uh, Mihai Igloo. Yeah, look it up. Uh, I-G-L-O-I is, I think, uh, what he was. And Mi- Mihai Igloo? Yeah, Mihai is M-I-H-I-L-Y. Just Michael. Oh, oh, this is, you've you got your Hungarian inflections in. That's right. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to read up on this, and we may have to have a, a roundtable at some point about this. And I would be interested to hear if anyone out there has already looked into this or has had a coach who's a descendant of any of these people, or even a, a connection to this that could speak on this. Rich Diaz is a California guy. I wonder if he has any connections over there. I would be very, very interested in hearing about this school of thought. And if anyone knows anyone still living who is doing this type of thing or knows can speak directly on it, send them our way and maybe we can get a, an interview out of them. Yeah, I only remember one other name, unfortunately, from, from those times. Uh, Tabor Laszlo was the other one. So Mihai and Tabor are the, are the two. And uh, maybe both were in, one was Russian, one was ended up in uh, California, I believe, at the end. All are dead by now, unfortunately. All the descendants of that, that group. So we need someone who is a disciple of them. Well, there you have it, folks. We have a 75-minute training Tuesday just for you. Thank you very much, Macaulay, for co-hosting. It's a pleasure to have you back. And I'm going to walk out in the hallway and go downstairs and eat dinner with you now. Yeah, I'll see you in about three seconds here.